Hello and welcome to this episode of the Dallas Christian College Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Spees, and we're so glad that you've decided to join us for another episode in our Serve Like the King series that's focusing on leadership and what that looks like from a biblical point of view. Joining us for today's episode is the Director of Learning Technology and Associate Professor of Intercultural Studies here at DCC, Mr. Gary Hardy. Gary, it's great to have you today. It's good to be here. Gary's been with Dallas Christian College in his 22nd year now and has contributed to the DCC culture in numerous roles, including serving for a period of time as our men's dorm resident director with his family. And he is also serving currently as the chaplain for our baseball team. He's been married to his wife, Cindy, for 33 years. They have three children. Uh, two of those are DCC graduates, and he's the proud grandparent of one grandson. So we're glad to have him joining us and sharing today. Facilitating our discussion is the head of DCC's Practical Ministries Department, Dr. Eddie Sanders. So, Dr. Sanders, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you get this episode of Serve Like the King going. Yes, thanks. So we've been working through 1 Samuel, mm-hmm. seen several ups and downs, bumps in the road, some victories here and there. And we are in chapter 13 now. What happens in chapter 13? Well, Saul and Samuel. We've heard that about those guys before, right? Uh, Chapter 13, I'm just going to read the first 15 verses of that from the NIV. And then we're going to talk about it a little bit. So uh, it begins this way. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. Two were with him at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and capped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks, and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, Well, when I saw the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. So let's kind of fill in some detail here about what's going on. Um, A couple of chapters earlier in chapter 11, Saul had won 
a pretty impressive victory when the Ammonites had besieged Jabesh Gilead. And, uh, he, but he had 330,000 men. He had sounded the trumpet then and brought a bunch of volunteers in. Uh, here at the beginning of this chapter, he's reduced his forces tremendously. He sent all those volunteers home, and it looks like he's created kind of a standing army now of 3,000 men. Uh, he's got 2,000 of them under his direct command and 1,000 under his son Jonathan's command. Um, and so Jonathan, he takes his 1,000 men and maybe wasn't the smartest move you could have made. He decides to attack a Philistine outpost. We're not sure why he thought that was a good idea, but he did. And understandably, the Philistines were a little bit ticked off. They didn't like the idea that he had done that. And so they'd responded in kind with a numerically superior force. Uh, it's described in verse 5 of our text as numbering 3,000 chariots in the NIV. Some of the other versions say 30,000 chariots, mm. but they all say 6,000 charioteers. So I'm going with the 3,000. It's going to be pretty hard for one charioteer to drive five chariots, okay? Uh, this makes more sense because you've got two charioteers before each chariot, you know? But anyway, and it says soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So just in the same way that Saul had the Ammonites outnumbered in chapter 11, the Philistines have him outnumbered here in chapter 13. And here's the thing, I don't think Saul knows how to fight unless he's got the manpower advantage. He, he's never won a battle where he's been the underdog, where he's had fewer soldiers. He's always had that going for him, which is a strong, valid military tactic, attack with a superior force. He doesn't have that now. And in fact, when his 3,000 soldiers see all these other soldiers from the Philistines there, they're like, hey, we ain't having this. They're out. They're, they're crossing the river. They're hiding in caves. They're nowhere to be seen. They're deserting. Um, and Saul's getting worried. What am I going to do? Um, but as he sits there and waits, all of his men keep, more and more of his men keep deserting day by day. And he's seeing his force dwindle. But he's waiting. And why is he waiting? Because Samuel told him to. Samuel had told him to wait until he got there to give him instructions on what to do. Now, earlier in chapter 10, there's a, there's a verse there in verse 8 that says, go down ahead of me to, this is Samuel talking to Saul, says, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come and tell you what you are to do. Now, either the timeline in Samuel is all jumbled up or this is a second time that this has happened or something but there's a precedent here for him waiting for Samuel and he's waiting that's good that he's waiting but finally he gets exasperated because Samuel has not come in the seven days that he says he's going to be there and so he decides well I can't see I can't have more of my men leaving and rightly so I don't want to go into battle without the Lord's direction so I'm going to just offer the sacrifice this burnt offering myself and so he does and the text makes it sound like well he's still got the match in his hand basically or something uh, Samuel shows up and says what are you what are you doing and Saul makes excuses and then Samuel explains to him the consequences of his foolish action and I'm reminded that you know a lot of times in leadership we want things to happen and sometimes the pressures to make things happen don't even come from within us. They come from outside. People are expecting us to do things. I mean, if you've ever been 
in a paid ministry somewhere. There may be lay leaders in the church, elders, deacons, whatever they are, that have certain expectations for you to get certain things done in a certain amount of time. And when it doesn't seem to happen, they start saying, hey, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about this? And you're like, uh, seek the Lord's favor, uh, ask the Lord for help. But they want to see action. And, you know, in our world, that's pretty typical. You know, uh, in a corporation, if a CEO takes over and the stock price takes a dip right away, all of a sudden there's a reorganization, the CEO's out and somebody else new is in. Mm -hmm. Um, Everybody wants instant results. And that's also true in the church. Um, Even, you know, I was a foreign missionary for six years. And I would get sometimes the letters saying, well, how many baptisms have you had this month or this year? And, you know, they wanted, they wanted quantifiable evidence mm-hmm. of progress. And, you know, I'm out on the mission field all by myself. Um, they can't see what's going on. You know, how do I make, how do I be honest with them yet not risk my support <laughs> by saying, well, we, you know, honestly, we haven't had any baptisms this, right. these last six months. We've been sharing the gospel with people. We've been faithful, but we haven't seen the kind of results that you're looking for. And so I can see why, you know, in Saul's case, it's tempting to take matters into your own hands. And sometimes we we overreach a little bit. Why do we struggle to sit still? Yeah. That's what's happening in the story, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's like, no, 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 no. there's a problem. Let's let's fix it. Right. I mean, you've described that. I mean, he is a king, and... And if you remember, they wanted a king so they could be like everybody else. And that's what kings do. They make stuff happen. Uh, they're not good at sitting and waiting. Kings are really good at, at giving orders and leading and getting things done. And so the idea of I got to wait is hard. Uh, it's, it's hard for, you know, impatience is, is, a, is a big thing. And like I say, it can come from both within us and outside us, pressures. Even if Saul wanted to wait, he's got soldiers saying, what are we going to do? You know, and he's losing them by the day. That would be hard. You're, you're trying to do the, the job God has called you to, mm-hmm. and it's looking worse and worse as the days go by. And, and, that, and that's life. Yeah. You know, we don't know why the attack happened. We could ask that mm-hmm. all day long. But that's life. There's this call to sit and then Saul takes matters into his own hands. Yeah, and, and what he did was something he should not have done, you know. Um, it seems kind of like, okay, so he offered a sacrifice. Is that such a huge problem? Well, for God it was. Um, you know, God doesn't give us a lot of commands about how to worship or things like that, but the few that he does give us, he kind of expects us to obey. Um, and this was one, you know, it was the priest's job to offer that bird offering. Mm-hmm. And that was Samuel's job, not Saul's. Uh, there's a division between the duties of the king and the priest in Israel. It wasn't necessarily the case in all the nations around them. Sometimes the, the king and the priest were one and the same, but in Israel, it was never that way. The priests were separate from the kings. And even, you know, even Moses wasn't allowed to offer sacrifices. His brother Aaron was the high priest. And so here's Moses, you know, God's chosen leader of the Israelites. Even he wasn't allowed to make those offerings. Only Aaron and his family could do that. And it was a big deal. In fact, you know, earlier in 1 Samuel, in chapter 2, uh, Eli's sons 
are making a mockery of the sacrifices by demanding the meat be given to him before the fat's burned off. And it says in 1 Samuel 2.17, the sin of the young man was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. In essence, Saul was treating the Lord's offering with contempt here by taking it upon himself to uh, not wait for Samuel, but offer it himself. And so that, and this marks a turning point for Saul. I mean, this is the first place yep. where Saul's told, the kingdom is not going to be yours for much longer. Prior to that, it sounded like he was going to have a dynasty that would, you know, Jonathan would succeed him as king and Jonathan's son down the road. But this Saul, Samuel says, nope, you're done. Yeah, the theme that's kind of resonating with my heart here in my life is we want to control God. Yeah. There you go. And that's what Saul is doing here. Uh, and maybe you'd even state it stronger how many times have I tried to manipulate mm-hmm. God? You know? And, and, and I, I think all the way from the missionary during World War II who says, God, if you get me out of here, which is a legitimate mm-hmm. prayer to, you know, just selfish things I want mm-hmm. uh, tomorrow. That this, I, I understand where Saul's coming from, and, mm-hmm. and I do it too. Yeah, he's treating, so he's treating Yahweh the way the nations around him treated their gods. Um, you know, a I'm, a mission, I'm a missions professor, and I talk to my students about, you know, animism, the manipulation of spirits and things like that. And I say, that's the difference. It's not spirit worship. It's spirit manipulation. Um, in animism, the person says to the gods, you are power. How can I get you to do what I want you to do? Mm-hmm. But worship says to God, you're God. What would you have me do? Oh, that's good. And that's a big difference. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing is, though, there are Christians who, frankly, treat God in an animistic way. They, they want to know, what's the formula? You know, I can get to, you know, if I do this, how can I get God's favor to give me wealth or health or, you know, prosperity gospel kinds of talk and things like that. But it doesn't even have to be the, the, the really extended, you know, God's going to give me a Mercedes. It could be, you know, God's just going to give me a new job if I do these things or whatever. But it's tempting to put, and that's what Saul was, in essence, doing, I think, with God here. He's treating Yahweh like the others treat Baal and Ashtoreth and the, the, the pagan gods around them. And this is a problem when the leader yeah. is taking the people back to the core of what Yahweh called them out of. Exactly. You're to be different yeah. because I am different because I yeah. am. And we do the same today. Yeah. Uh, every, time, you know, every time you hear about a, a pastor or a church leader um, that's failed— um, you can be sure that there are probably members of that person's congregation that have failed as well because of his or her example. You know, as the, as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. Mm-hmm. As, the, as the pastor goes, so goes the church. Uh, you, could, you know, it's, it's that simple. Uh, well, you know, bad me, leadership leads you in a bad way. Yeah, I think the, the key verse there as you were reading that narrative is when Samuel tells Saul, okay, you, you, you've done a, a bad thing and now... You're going to lose this because God is seeking a man after His own heart. Yeah, and and I, you know, I as I was listening to you two talk, I'm I'm reminded a, a story I share from the New Testament that I think is <laughs> is extremely dangerous for all of uh, our worship leaders and, and any of us in church leadership is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount 
when Jesus is saying that not everyone who says to me, Lord, oh, Lord, man. will enter the kingdom of, of heaven. It's the scariest verse in the Bible. Well, it is because, and it's just in this case, was Saul doing anything inherently evil? Well, no, he's actually worshiping. Yeah. He's giving sacrifice yeah. to God, but he's doing it in an inappropriate way yeah. or in a way that is not God-honoring. Yeah. Because here again, many will say on that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in yeah. your name? Well, that sounds good. Like a good thing, didn't we drive out demons and didn't we perform miracles? Well, those those are all good, godly Christian activities, and yet Jesus says, "I I never knew you away from mm-hmm. me." And I think it's the same thing here yeah. that we we can have good intentions and we as leaders can think we're doing the right thing, but if we're not doing what God wants us to do, then yeah, really it's, people are say, to me that's one of the, I mean, if not the scariest, at least one of the handful of scariest verses in the Bible to me. One of the themes here in this is when, in this passage back in 1 Samuel 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. Yeah. Now that, that word in the Old Testament here and in this passage isn't so much about, you know, someone bumbling around through life racking up credit card debt. Right. You know, think of, of the psalm. The fool says in his heart, there mm. is no God. Yeah. And so this is, this is an intentional decision to do things my way. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there premeditation here? I don't know, but there's there's definitely fear and worry that drive him. Right. And yeah, I, I just I see this lived out in my life, in, in the lives of, of so many around. This is this is what we do. We struggle to sit still. Yeah. And what should leaders do, Gary? Well, be still and know that I am Lord. Um Obviously, there are times to take action, um, but that should be done, you know, first of all, in prayer. Uh, if we're not in prayer, we have no hope because we're relying only on our own strength at that point. And that's what, you know, Saul was, uh, at least Saul recognized that in his own strength, he wasn't going to win this battle. He didn't have enough men. Good point. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, give him, give him props for that, I guess. But even then, going about it the right way, not 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 shortcutting, I guess, and uh, getting ahead of God. You know, just because God wasn't working on his timetable didn't mean God didn't have a timetable. And it's up to us to adapt to God's timetable and not try to get God to adapt to ours. Yep, very helpful. That's excellent. Thank you for sharing today. And uh, thank you for joining us for this episode, what is the eighth episode in our Serve Like the King series. We're going to wrap it up in two weeks uh, with a final uh, lesson uh, by Miss Larice Perry, a member of our uh, staff here. You'll want to check in for that, and then we'll move into a summer series that's going to be exciting, and we'll tell you more about it in uh, the coming weeks. But again, thank you for joining us for the Dallas Christian College Leadership Podcast. If you want to learn more about DCC and our mission and the degrees we offer and and maybe even have an opportunity to study with someone like Gary Hardy and Dr. Eddie Sanders, we'd love for you to check us out at www.dallas.edu. We are committed to changing the world for Christ one student at a time with an education that's accessible, affordable, and attainable. And we'd love to be able to talk to you about what God's doing in your life and how he may be calling you to, uh, to join us here at DCC. Take care. Have a great rest of your day, and we'll catch you next time.